0: the Following God series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber.
1: Well, turn, if you will, this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. <laughs> That's a familiar sound, isn't it? we may be there for another year for all I know. Sure, we'd like to get out of it, <clears throat> but it just keeps hanging around. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we're continuing to talk about should I stay married. This is really part two of what we began the last time. Should I stay married? Now I know review sometimes can be redundant and some of you get a little bored with it, but I can't help it. That's the way I'm, I'm cut. You've got to keep the flow. If you ever miss the flow, that's when you get out of what God's really saying. And so if you'll bear with me, it all started in verse one of chapter seven. And Paul says, now concerning the things about which you wrote, we would we wish we knew those questions. Don't wouldn't it be wonderful if some scroll could be found and look at here, here are the questions that were asked of the apostle Paul, but it hasn't been, and God has ordained that. And so we have the answers, but not the questions. Verses one through seven seem to have wrapped itself around a perverted view of sexual behavior. They had equated sexual intimacy and in marriage with immorality. And you know, a lot of people do that. They misunderstand sex is not bad. Sex outside of marriage is bad. That's immorality. And they, re- they, they refused to draw a line between immorality of verse 2 and that beautiful sexual intimacy that God has ordained for the marriage partnership. Well, the Apostle Paul anticipated the fact that they were probably saying, we don't know the question, should I remain single or should I get married? Really, if it's better to remain single if, if all sex is bad And so Paul has to set the record straight and show that sexual intimacy in marriage is not only good, it's what God designed. It has nothing to do with the immoralities of their culture of that time. Now, let me hasten to say this, that in Corinth, this is the most immoral place in the world at that time. Now, remember that. If anybody was in Athens or in other places in Greece and they would be acting immorally, they would say, you're acting like a Corinthian. So you have to understand this. It would just cram down their throats every day the idea of this immoral culture. and so they naturally, without thinking, equated anything to do with sex as being bad. And Paul's trying to set the record straight. Well, in verses eight and nine, we saw that Paul dealt with the divorced and the widowed, and the subject is remarriage. May I remarry? In other words, should I marry? And then now, may I remarry? that uh, they had been married before. He told them it's better if you've been married before you've been divorced or widowed to stay unmarried. And we had to make a qualification there. He must be talking about older widows because the younger widows, he tells them in Timothy to get married and have children. So he's evidently referring to the divorced and the older widows here. And again, it's not a complete teaching on it. He's just answering a question. And he tells them to, to stay unmarried. However... If they do stay unmarried, they have to keep their sexual desires that were awakened in the marriage relationship under control. And if they can't and scripture allows it, then they should get married. That's the basic answer he gives to them in verse 8 and verse 9. In verse 10, he turns towards the married couples now. And the questions they have concerning divorce and remarriage. Obviously, the situation in the Corinthian church involved all kinds of marriages. But two are very prominent in the context. One is where you have two believers in that marriage relationship relationship. The other is what I call the split family. One is a believer and the other is an unbeliever. And he deals with them this way as as we have studied. He tells those where both partners are saved to stay married. To stay married. Uh, We had a good look, by the way, at the authority of the apostle in verse 10. He says, but to the married I give instructions. Not I, but the Lord. What he's saying is he's already commanded the permanency of marriage. I'm just relating it to you. That's what he's basically saying there. It's just a simple statement of apostolic authority. What God commands is clear to believing spouses. In verse 10, that the wife should not leave her husband, very clearly. Then in verse 11, that the husband should not send the wife away. This is God's command. But the fact that one may leave, that somebody might leave the other, has to be understood. And it brings out in verse 11, he says, but if she does leave, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled, to her husband. Now evidently this leaving, or this, as it goes on to say, sending the wife away, is not because of immorality. Remember in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 9, Jesus did give that exception. He said, Except there be for immorality. And evidently that's not the case here. You've got two believers, one decides to leave, and that's not God's plan. And he says, if you choose to do it, because you're going to do what you're going to do, then don't don't remarry. It's what he tells them. Because permanency in marriage is God's order and God's design. And the only exception he gives is in Matthew 19 and verse 9. Then Paul moves, as we we saw, as we're seeing today, to the split family. This is a whole different set of problems here. Again, a believer married to an unbeliever. Obviously, there used to be unbelievers, both of them. One of them has gotten saved. And this has presented a whole new set of problems. He says, if the unbeliever chooses to stay with the believer, then by all means, stay married. Verse 12, he says, But to the rest I say, not to the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, let him not send her away. And in verse 13, And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, let her not, that's absolute, send her husband away. When Paul says, To the rest I say, not the Lord, He's not saying this is some personal opinion I have. I don't believe that at all. What he's saying is Jesus never taught on this specific thing. He didn't bring out this specific problem. And now he's assigned me to address it. And here is what I'm telling you. As an apostle, Paul was instructed by the Lord to give this command. Don't leave the unbelieving spouse. Don't send away the unbelieving spouse if they will stay with you. Then he shows why in verse 14. Now, to me, this was so encouraging. It says, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through the wife, through his wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise, your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Now, holy does not mean saved. It means set apart, put in a class all by themselves. And what people don't realize is the power and the influence of a believer in a situation like this. Here's a believer amongst unbelievers. He says, don't send them away. You stay by your very presence. It's setting them apart. It doesn't mean that they'll necessarily get saved, but they'll have the influence of one who is saved around them. I was in a meeting this past week with Bill Stafford and Diana, my wife, evangelist Diana Barber. And uh, we had a wonderful time. Matter of fact, Bill and I, they could take her leave. They loved Diana. (laughs) They just fell all over her. We had a wonderful time. The pastor, Bob Walker, who's been to our Equip Conference, probably will be coming back this next year. Bob was telling me his testimony, and I'd never heard it before. How when he grew up, he did not grow up in a Christian home. Eight children in the family, a huge family. And when he got older, he said that he never heard Jesus from his parents. He heard Jesus from his grandparents, his grandmother. He said, my grandmother would just stay in there. He said, I heard the gospel from the time I was little. He said, regardless of what my parents would do, my grandmother would tell me the truth. And one day I came to know Christ. And as a result of that grandmother being in a family filled with unbelievers, that grandmother had such influence that Bob came to know Christ. Then three days before his father died, he was able to lead his father to Christ on, on his deathbed. And see, all of that started because of the influence of a believer in a family. That's why Paul says, stay in there, man. If they'll stay with you, you stay with them. Because the the power of of the influence of a believer is many times looked over. We think that we're the ones put down, oh no, by your very presence, you're sanctifying that whole family. And if you're an unbelieving husband here this morning, for some other reason or not, and you live with a believing wife, you better thank God every day you live with a believing wife. And her prayer is every day that you get saved because you do not realize the influence that God is allowing her to have in your life. And you need to hear that. Well, the power of a believer's life. Well, today we address another situation. You see, the first situation is that the unbelieving husband or wife is willing to stay. That's the first situation he deals with. But now we've got another one today, totally different. The unbelieving spouse says, I'm out of here. I didn't marry a believer, and I don't want to live with a believer, and I'm leaving you. I'm going to divorce you. What do you do in that kind of situation? Well, there are five things that I want you to see. You pray for me. This is not shallow water at all. This is very deep waters we're wading in. And the only thing I know to do, I didn't write it. Let's just see what it says. First of all, the reality of an unbelieving spouse leaving. We've got to face that. If you are living in an unbelieving situation and one day one of you gets saved, you've got to face the fact that that unbelieving partner may walk out on you, may divorce you, simply because of of your faith in Jesus Christ. It's a very difficult situation to face, but it's real. It's a reality of life. They may walk away from you. It's a real fact. Verse 15 says, uh, 1 Corinthians 7, Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. That's interesting, isn't it? Somebody comes to you and says, what am I going to do? My my husband's an unbeliever and he's divorcing me. What should I do? And somebody says, oh man, do everything you can possibly do to keep that relationship going. Whatever it costs you. And what does Paul say? (laughs) Let him leave. That's interesting, isn't it? The word unbelieving is apistos, without belief. The word for depart or leave there is the word Corizo. Corizo means to sever something. And we've already looked at that word in the matter of a relationship. And of course, in the context, divorce. This person says, I didn't marry you as a believer. Now you've become a believer. I'm divorcing you. Now, what do you do? It's in the present middle indicative. Now, what does that mean? Well, present tense, he's in the act of divorcing his spouse. This is not a whim. This didn't just happen the moment that person got saved. This is something that's been an activity now on their, on their mind. Probably seen. He's been planning it for a while. Middle voice, it's absolutely his decision. Not passive. Not cause to be because of the unbel- of the believer or the person becoming a believer. This is his own choice. He's responsible for this choice. Indicative, write it down. It's happening. You see, that's the way that, that tense works there. Get the picture. Here's a man who is divorcing his wife. He's planning it. The signs and the symptoms are everywhere. And this act of leaving his spouse, now listen, is tied to his lack of belief. Now I want to say that very carefully because I want you to know and realize this is not the behavior of a believer. But Brother Wayne, I know believers are doing the same thing. You do. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Maybe they need to go back and check and see if they're truly believers because this is not the behavior of a believer. This is the behavior of man without faith. That's interesting, folks. And again, I didn't write this. Paul goes on to say in verse 15, yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. And Paul, it's, it's a present imperative active command. I mean, imperative means it's a command. I'm commanding you as an apostle with the authority God has placed upon me. Let him leave. Do nothing to stop his leaving. Let him go on and do what he's determined to do. Now, this goes against what our flesh will sometimes come up with and the guilt trip we put on ourselves. But he says, if if that unbeliever is determined to leave you and divorce you, you back off and do nothing to stop him. Let him leave. It's a fact that that must be dealt with if he's determined to leave. Let him leave. Now, you've got to understand something here in in the way I'm putting this context together. From about the middle of chapter 6 all the way to where we are right now, the house that all this teaching is lived in is the house of immorality. That's been the context all the way through. In every situation he's dealt with, he's brought up sexual immorality. Somehow, in my heart, I believe they're tied together here. Here's an old boy that's been immoral because that's what Corinth was. It was a very immoral place. And now he's married to a wife that's a believer who's walked away from that kind of behavior. Look at chapter 6 and verse 11, just to remind you. And verse 9 and 10 talks about, such were some of you, you know, and it talks about all the immoral behavior that they came out of. But verse 11, and I don't want to read 9 and 10 again, I've got a lot to say this morning, but in verse 11 it says, and such were some of you. And it points back to this kind of behavior. It talks about homosexuality and all this kind of stuff. Such were some of you. But then he says, but you were washed. And remember that you were washed is not in the passive sense. It's in the middle voice. Uh, you washed yourselves. It's not dealing with sin, cleansing of sin. That's inward. That's only what God can do. And only the blood of Jesus can do that. But this word has more of the external. You walked away from that kind of lifestyle. You, you're repenting had to do with your turning away from that and turning to the lifestyle that God offers to you. You you came out of that way of living into a new way of living. So what we have here, we have a believer, a believing spouse here, a wife, and that wife now has walked away from all that immoral behavior that she and her husband most likely were involved in. And as she walked away from it, now light is in her and she is exposing him Regardless of what she does, because the Lord in her immediately aggravates him and agitates him. And he says, forget it. I'm out of here. And walks away. Well, the reality of it is going to happen. What does Paul say? Let him leave. Let him leave. Well, the second thing he's going to bring up here is what result this has on... On the believing spouse when the unbelieving spouse leaves? What result now comes when the unbelieving spouse abandons his believing wife in divorce? Verse 15, yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases. Now let's examine this phrase. The brother of the sister shows that it can be an unbelieving husband or unbelieving wife. And I mean, don't, no, it's usually the man, but that doesn't mean it's always the man they're on either side. If they walk away from a believer for whatever reason, most likely for their own immoral enjoyment, but if they do, then it, then it can be either man or woman. Now, he says, is not under bondage. There are two words for not, and we try to bring this out as often as we can, and most of the time, they're this way. Now, sometimes in Scripture, you may find a place that will contradict it, but, we, but when you look at the whole of it, the word me, little transliterated word me, M-N, it looks like if you, if you wrote it out, is relative not. We've seen that already in 1 Corinthians. But then there's the word ooh. And ooh, most, most of the time, refers to an absolutely not in any way, shape, or form. And so he says the brother or the sister, whichever one it is, the believing partner that's left, is not in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> Is not is in the perfect tense, by the way, when it says is not under bondage. Perfect tense, uh, perfect passive, matter of fact. Perfect tense means because of the action of the unbelieving spouse. That has caused the believing spouse to be in a state that they're in right now. Passive voice, they didn't choose it. It was chosen for them and the action happened upon them. So they are in this state as a result of the irresponsibility of the unbeliever to divorce his wife. Under bondage is an interesting word. It's written as if it's in the present, but it's not. It, it, it means to be in the state of slavery. It's, it's the perfect ending. Again, it's a perfect tense here. In other words, you're in this state of not being under bondage anymore because of the action of the unbelieving partner. You see, marriage was like being enslaved to one another, and it is today. And I know what some of you are thinking. Yeah, amen, brother. <laughs> I mean, in a good sense. <laughs> in a good sense. That's funny. Sometimes I come home from a meeting and dine and wants my feet on the ground. She'll always say, Wayne, well, take the garbage out. You know, I mean, and I think about this yoke of slavery sometimes. When I'm, especially when I'm cutting the grass and I bought her a lawnmower with its own headlights so it can cut it after dark. But we're, it's a yoke of slavery but it's like the Christian. You see, it's a picture of our relationship to Christ. We're also slave to, enslaved to him, but we're enslaved to him by choice. Just like you're enslaved to one another by choice in marriage. There's a yoke, there is a slavery, but it's a good kind of slavery. It's not that you have to, it's because you want to, you get to. But now, no longer are you enslaved. That's what the scripture says. That covenant bond has been broken by the action of the disbelieving husband who walked out on you and divorced you. You are not unyoked. You are not enslaved anymore. This brings up an interesting scenario. Is this believer free to remarry? And the answer I give to that is yes. If she's free to be divorced, she's free to remarry. I mean, that's the only way I can see scripture. If divorce is permitted, then remarriage is permitted. He or she is no longer held responsible to that marriage bond. But I thought you said, Wayne, that there's only one exception for divorce and that's what our Lord gave and that the Lord gave an exception of immorality. And that's exactly right, he did. Are we adding another? No, I don't think so. It appears to me when Paul says, Jesus did not deal with this. And as an apostle, he's assigned me to deal with it that we're just seeing the picture completed and somehow desertion and abandonment of an unbelieving spouse. Now we're careful now, unbelieving. This has nothing to do with believers on both both believers. When an unbelieving spouse divorces the other, the believing spouse, somehow in God's economy that's equated with adultery. And I really believe the main thing is the plain thing. She now is free. Period. She's free. And by being free, she's free. Don't put any stipulations on somebody who's free. If she's free, she's free to remarry. And that's the way I see scripture. And what happens here is you can say, well, well, it's still confusing to me. Why would Jesus, because, listen, I think the confusion comes is that we forget, is what I said earlier that his divorcing his wife, it does not say it here, so you couldn't prove it, but I believe somehow is tied to his immoral wanderings. Why in the world would an unbeliever want to divorce a believer who comes into their life and all of a sudden loves him unconditionally, all of a sudden wants to serve him with the, with the love of Christ, all of a sudden wants to comfort with the love of Christ? That doesn't make any sense. The world has been begging for people to live as Christians for how long? But when somebody will not give up something, And this person continues to aggravate that. To me, they're tied together. I guarantee you, you'll find 99% of them, if not 100%, will divorce that wife and immediately go back to immoral behavior. If the immoral behavior, I guarantee you, is tied to it somehow. And that's one of the reasons they wanted to bail out. But I can't prove any of that. All I can say is what it says. She is no longer bound in slavery. That yoke is broken. And to me... The main thing is a plain thing, and the plain thing is the main thing. He doesn't throw anything else in it, so let's don't add anything to it. That's what he says. And if you're free, you're free. So somehow that act of abandonment by a disbelieving husband to his believing wife or vice versa, somehow is equated with that adultery that Jesus said, except there be for immorality and, and that frees that person to marry. That's where I believe, and, and uh, that's what I believe Scripture teaches. I don't think you can add anything to it, take anything away from it. That's just what it says. Well, we see the result. What's the resource now of the abandoned spouse? Because they're gonna have to, there's going to have to be something here. They've been abandoned. What do they do? What resource do they depend upon? Paul goes on. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Now, the word translated, but there is the little word in the Greek, the, D-E. It's most frequently used to introduce something else. Paul adds something else now to what has been said, but God has called us to peace. Now, what is he saying? And I have read all kinds of ideas, but here's what my opinion is of what he's saying, and you must take it that way. I'm not inerrant. The Word of God is inerrant. But as I see Scripture here, he's, I think he's saying that even though the unbelieving spouse leaves and divorces the believing spouse, the believing spouse must live at peace in their own hearts with the one who has just left. No hostile action is to be taken. Nothing is to be done to fight the spouse who is divorcing the believer. The believer is at peace with God and must live at peace with all men, even though the spouse divorces them. Implied in what he says, of course, is is the believer's resource of being at peace with God. When you're at peace with God and you have the peace of God, then you can be at peace with all men. And that doesn't matter. It doesn't say they're going to be at peace with you. But it does say you can be at peace with them. Look over in Romans chapter 12, verse 18. It's in the context of when people wrongly treat you And I want you to see what the Apostle Paul says here. And I think it it sheds light on what we're seeing here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Romans 12 and verse 18. He says in verse 18 of Romans 12, if possible, so far as it depends on you, Be at peace with all men. That's right in the context of when people persecute you and do all kinds of manner of evil things against you, if if it's possible. And there are times when it may not be possible, and perhaps this is one of them, but be at peace with all men. And again, the reason we can be at peace with others is because we're at peace with God and we have the peace of God. The believer is not in conflict with God. Therefore, he should not be in conflict with the one who leads. That love continues to go with him. That peace relationship continues to be there, perhaps to plant the seed so that that person will never forget the demeanor of a a believer. But not doing anything hostile to stop him. Don't be hostile. Don't take any unnecessary action to throw anything that will mar your witness. Just be at peace at all times with him. Even though he's not at peace with you or she's not at peace with you, you be at peace with him. Well, a believer has a resource that enables him or her to live at peace even with the one who divorces them because of their faith in Christ. They're now brand new, believe, they're brand new people in Christ. They're brand new creatures in Christ. So they have this resource they didn't have before. So the reality of an unbelieving spouse leaving is very much there, very much there. The result of an unbelieving spouse leaving is that the, the one who's believing is no longer in that yoke, that bond, And the resource of the one who is left behind, the one who's been abandoned, is that fact that they're at peace with God, and they have that resource to be at peace with the one who walked out on them. They have absolutely no hostility whatsoever towards that one. Well, the fourth thing I want you to see here is the regret of the abandoned spouse, the believing spouse, the regret. When an unbeliever leaves a believer, there's always a regret on the believer's life, and I'll tell you why. She said, the believer now knows the saving power and the saving life of Christ in their life. They desperately want their mates to know this. I mean, that's the first thing thing that happens to you. If you have two unbelievers, one of them gets saved. The first thing that believer wants to do is to share with the unbeliever what they have. They desperately want this. Now, the regret comes in the form of when the unbeliever Finally decides, it's not a whim, it's not an overnight decision, but he finally decides that he's divorcing them and separating himself from them and leaving them. The regret comes in wondering, what could you have done differently that possibly could have been light for him or her that they might have been saved? Did I fail in the marriage? I got saved, but did I fail God in the midst of it? And you can hear the emotion even when Paul speaks in chapter and verse 16. You can hear the emotion here. Paul says in verse 16, For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? You know, again, feeling the emotion there of the moment, and and you, you perhaps know people like this. They got saved and their whole marriage fell apart because the unbeliever would not give up the immorality in their life or whatever else, and they just walked away from you. You feel abandoned now, but you also have that overwhelming remorse and regret. What could I have done differently? that might have caused them to be saved. Lord, I have failed you. This is why it's so important, by the way, to be at peace with them because you have left a testimony that's open. You've sown a seed that can be watered later on. But Paul is saying, let them go. You can't know whether they would have ever been saved or not. You see, (laughs) that's God's business, not ours. Isn't it amazing how we take responsibility for salvation when it's not our responsibility? It's our responsibility to be vessels through which God witnesses to others and we share the gospel. But salvation is God's business. It's not man's business. And Paul says, how how do you know? How do you know that they'd ever been saved? You're beating yourself up. How how could you have ever known that they would have ever been saved? He points them to that fact. Stop beating yourself up. The word for know to me is the key there. It's the word evo. And evo is the word different from other words for know. Some words you know by experience. But this word evo means to know by uh, perception. The uh, idea comes from horao. It, it means to know and understand intuitively. It's as if nobody had to tell you, you knew something inside and you knew this. And Paul says, you don't have that kind of knowledge. Only God has that kind of knowledge. So stop beating yourself up just because the person has left and the regret has overwhelmed you. You can't know. You make sure you stay at peace with that individual so that you keep your testimony alive and clear. And if that person ever wants to come back to you and receive the Lord Jesus Christ, then that's another situation. But how can you know? You would not have known. This is not knowledge that God gives to man. How do you know? I wonder if there's anybody here this morning that had an unbelieving husband or wife just walk away from them, just divorced them right on the spot. I mean, devastated you. Then you felt the regret of maybe I failed. What could I have done differently to lead her to Christ or him to Christ? And now maybe God wants to speak a word to your heart. How could you have known? You see, long as you stay at peace with them, no hostility, long as you stay living in the testimonies you have, at least they have something they can come back to in that testimony. But you couldn't have known. There's no way. God does not give that kind of knowledge to man. So quit beating yourself and then finally, the response of the abandoned spouse. That's going to take a little longer to develop this point. The response of the believing spouse. Verse 17. How, what do they do now? They've been abandoned. They're no longer up under the yoke. What are they do? How are they to maintain their lives when a wife or a husband has walked away from them? What do they do? And verse 17. Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God called, has called each in this manner, only in this manner, let him walk. Then he says, and thus I direct in all of the churches. There could not be many situations in life that could be more hurtful and damaging than to be a believer and have an unbelieving spouse walk away from you. Somebody you love. Somebody you really wanted to come to know Christ as you know him and to walk in the light that you can walk in. Nothing could be any more hurtful than that, and to be abandoned. And sometimes perhaps not only the cry comes out, I'm so filled with regret I failed, but also the cry comes out, God, why did you do this to me? Why would you save me, and then let me walk into this kind of circumstance? God, it seems to me like maybe we were better off before than now. Perhaps that's the question somebody has asked. But Paul says to them, Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each in this manner, let him walk. Verse 17 is an answer to a very perplexing problem. The New American Standard Version really nails it when he says only as. That individualizes this thing. In other words, Wayne only as the the lot I've given to you. Tim only as the lot I've given to you. Jason only as the lot. In other words, this applies to the individual now. And each individual has a different lot that either God has sovereignly ordained or permitted. God's in control, though. He always has been in control. God oversees all of life. Now, I want to tell you something. What we do in these situations, when they're hurtful and harmful to us, we make ourselves out to be victims. And I'll tell you what, the secular world loves to hear you say that because that's the message they've been pronouncing for a long time, that people are victims, and that's why they turn people away from God. If God was a loving God, why would God do this? I want to tell you something, friend. As a believer, you are never a victim. That is an excuse you can never use from the time you get saved, from that point on, because God has bought you and purchased you, and you're his own, and he is sovereignly in control of your life. And You take that excuse that you're a victim, and you take it to the cross and you confess it before God, then you ask him to forgive you of the sinful attitude that you've had towards him, thinking of yourself as a victim. God has demonstrated his love towards you by sending his son to die on a cross for you. Greatest demonstration ever known on earth. Don't you ever question his character when difficult things come in your life. He's sovereignly in control, and his will is good, acceptable, and perfect, and he gives each man his own lot. And only as you're willing to receive that lot as from him can you walk in the situation that now you find yourself. It's like putting a puzzle together and each one of us has a piece of that puzzle. Mine is not exactly like yours and yours is not exactly like mine. But we have to find the road we walk, the lot that God gives to us. Our individual pain and circumstances do not make sense unless you put it in light of God's love and God's sovereign providence in your life. Look over in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. This is a verse that everybody puts on the refrigerator, but nobody believes it when something bad happens. This is great for teacher children, more difficult yet to live in front of them. This is why children grow up with all kinds of confusion. They hear the parents quote verses and then they watch the parents not live as if they even believe those verses. How many teachers do we even have in this church that teach things in their classroom but don't go out and live it? They're sending a double signal. Do you believe what you've taught? And that's the key. Do we believe this? Romans eight twenty-eight. He says, and we know that God causes all things. <laughs> Let me back up again. Let's read that again. <laughs> we know that God causes how many things? all things. I sometimes watch some of these uh, doodahs and, and I, I kind of like what they do. Let me hear all men, all men. I'm going to start doing that. <laughs> just make sure you're hearing the verse. I thought about that the other day. Maybe I ought to just start doing it. Let me hear an amen, amen. Let me hear it. all men, all men. No, I'm kidding. I won't do that. <laughs> Relax. <clears throat> God causes all things. Oh. To do what? To work together for good. As a master weaver, To whom? To those who love God. Now, notice in the first word, second word of the verse, he says, and we know. Now, if you've studied Romans with us and you went through the series, you understand that the Apostle Paul puts himself into that we, and the we has to go in the whole context of what he said in 6, 7, and 8. And the we there means those who trust God. Remember in Corinth? They're not living attached to Christ, so don't put yourself into this verse, because you don't know this. You only know it as you walk attached to him. As you you surrender to him, then there is an intuitive knowledge he'll give to you. You don't have to go to school to get it. And that knowledge is that he causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. To those who are called according to his purpose. In other words, they wake up every morning and say, God, I want to be about your purpose in my life. Now, whatever lot you've given me, I'm attaching myself to you. I'm trusting you. You're sovereign, and you're going to take me through whatever I've got to walk through. You are in me what I am not. In my weakness, your strength is made perfect. You cause all things to work together for good to them that love you. Now, you say, well, Wayne, I still don't understand that. Well, we'll go back to verse 26 and 27. And I hear these verses used so often People say this is a spiritual prayer language that people have. Well, I beg your pardon. It's a spiritual prayer language. That's right. You'll never hear it and you'll never speak it. And I'll show you what he's talking about. Verse 26. If you've never studied Romans 8 and you've jumped in there and used this verse, pulled it out of context and made something something to justify what you believe, you better go back and repent of that. You say, Wayne, you're mean this morning. No, I'm not. I'm just getting tired of people throwing things at me that hadn't got any scriptural basis to it at all. Verse 26, and in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. What is our weakness? For we do not know how to pray as we should. (laughs) We do not know how to pray as we should. Some people say that means we don't know what language to pray in. How far can you stretch this thing, folks? But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Oh, but that brother Wayne—that means intelligible words. Get off my case. Good grief, man! I love again. I'm going to say it again. Eddie said it. and I've just been—I've picked up on. Scripture is like a prisoner of war. You persecute it long enough, you can make it say whatever you want to make it say. But if you'll back off of that and just let it say what it says, what does it say? You can't. It's it's too deep for words. You're not going to hear this prayer, folks. Let me share the verse. The verse is the Spirit helps our weaknesses. You know what that is? Sin anti lambano. Sin means together with, in other words, me and him. Anti means face to face. In other words, he's up against me, not against me, but in the sense we're facing each other. Lambano, to receive or take up something. Now, what's he talking about? A burden hits you. You don't know how to pray. An unbelieving spouse walks away from you. You don't even know how to pray. You're desperate and you come before the Lord and you don't even know what to say. You don't have a clue what to say. Well, if you're living attached to Christ, you can be assured of something. You don't have to know what to say because you've picked up one end of the log, but you can't pick up the other. It's too heavy for you. Seen Auntie Lumbano. He, facing you, picks up the other end because he knows how to pray. He knows what the will of God is because he's God, God the Holy Spirit. So while you are groaning and don't even know what to say, the Spirit of God is praying to the Father exactly the will of God. You see, this fits right into the sovereign control of God. This is why you can say, I thank God in the midst of all my circumstances. But then Ephesians, I can thank God for all of my circumstances. Even when an unbelieving spouse has abandoned you, you can thank God in the midst of it. Why? Because even though you don't know how to pray, the Spirit is already praying the perfect will of God for you. And he has given you an assigned lot and he will enable you to walk through it. Well, verse 27. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is because he intercedes for the saints. How? According to the what? The will of God. I'll tell you what, that's one of the most comforting passages when you read it right into verse 28. For we know that God causes all things to work together for good. And you think, well, where does this process start? With me? No, it starts up here with him. (laughs) And in the counsel of the Godhead, he knows how to make all things, even a hurtful situation, to work together for my good. What kind of good? What kind of God would call a being abandoned good? Well, you hadn't read far enough. Verse 29 it says, "For whom He foreknew, <laughs> He also predestined to become conformed to the image of whom, His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren." In other words, God saying. I had a a predestined plan for you. Predestination has to do with the purpose. Foreknowledge has to do with the person. I foreknew you. You never knew me. But my predestined plan for you is that one day you'll be like Jesus. You won't be Jesus, but you'll be like him. And therefore, I have assigned to you the lot in life. And whatever circumstances you find yourself, as Paul says in Philippians 4, learn to be content because he's using that circumstance to your betterment to conform you to the image of Christ Jesus. There's a lot of chipping has to be done in our lives, folks, and, who, and God knows exactly what's going on. and if it's, an un, un, if it's a bad situation, God takes a bad situation and uses a little heavier hammer at that time to chip off the flesh of our life and to bring us to where we decrease even more, so that Christ might increase in us. That's the message we've been preaching for 16 and a half years. I wonder this morning how many people have heard it. Or do you still shake your fist in God's face and call yourself a victim without understanding his sovereign control of everything that's going on in your life? And what he allows, he allows. And what lot he gives you, he gives to you. And you must live individually in that lot according to the grace that he'll give you to live. You know, I don't know what's ahead of me. People say, I wish I had a crystal ball. Are you kidding me? Don't tell me. (laughs) Let's just take it day at a time. That's why Jesus says, don't be anxious for what? Tomorrow. Sufficient for tomorrow is the evil thereof. You live today, step by step, in the sufficiency he's given to you in himself. And trust him. Don't ever consider yourself a victim. Just consider some of the tools that God uses as being something you didn't understand. And leave it there. Bill Stafford said one time he was standing down at Stone Mountain or sitting at Stone Mountain at, the, at the, the end there. Have you ever been down to Stone Mountain and there's a big restaurant there that you can see the mountain? I used to think there were three presidents. That <laughs> shows you I was raised in the South. There are three Confederate generals. <laughs> They're not presidents. <laughs> I told everybody, there are three presidents down there. Said, no way, It's not Mount Rushmore. And I was looking at these three Confederate generals and he said he was looking at them that day and I remembered him telling me this. He said, you know, They didn't add a single thing to those rocks to make them look like that. But they sure had to do a lot of chipping to get them to look like that. We're to be conformed to the image of Christ. Well, I've been abandoned. And God says, I know that. But I'm causing all things to work together for good so that you might be conformed even more in the image of Christ Jesus. So in whatever lot you're in, thank me for it. Thank me in it. Trust me through it and I'll bring out my good. Not good that you think is good, good that I see that is good, eternal. And one day when you see me, you'll look back and say, glory, that's what it was all about. The process began of salvation. So whatever lot you're in, is what Paul is saying, verse 17. Live in it. Matter of fact, this begins to frame his thought all the way down through verse 25. It's beautiful. As God assigns that to you, and you can say he assigned it if he allowed it. I mean, I don't. when you get beyond that, I can't answer any questions for you because I'm not God. There are two absolutes. I've told you over and over, first is there is a God, two is I'm not him, neither are you. I can't figure all this out, but I can trust what God says. Only as the Lord, he says in verse 17, has assigned to each one. That's so individual, you can't escape it. As God has called each in this manner, let him walk. That let him walk means circumspectly. In other words, everything in your life built around what your faith has taught you. And then then to to show the Corinthians, it's not just them. He says, and thus I direct in all the churches. As God has called each, is literally in that verse, as God has dealt to each. And I want to show you where that phrase is used. And real quickly, because my time's gone. Let me show you. In Romans 12, 3, let me just read it for you. For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. That's the exact Greek phrase that we see right here. As God has allotted to each a measure of faith. You put those two truths together. As God has allotted your difficult situation to happen, God has also allotted the faith to enable you and the grace to enable you to walk through it. (laughs) Because he'll never assign you to anything that he will not enable you to walk through. So each person in that own assignment, attach yourself to Christ and live in his grace and the faith that he's given to you. Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each in this manner, let him walk. And thus I direct in all the churches. Well, time's out of here. Meditate on those things. Just take them back. And remember, I'm not an errant. Don't ever build your faith on what Wayne says. You build your faith on what God's Word says. As I see it, that's the way I see God's Word. You study it for yourself. What does it say? The reality is some bad things can happen when you become a believer. One of them can be your spouse. Walk away from you. But the reality is also live in the lot God has allowed. <laughs> and trust Him to work it for your good. See? Walk in it. Well, can I remarry? That's not your issue. The issue is, what does God want in my life? But I think you are free because you're no longer bound in that yoke of slavery. You're no longer in that yoke. That covenant bond has been broken by his abandonment in your life. Well, you've been very patient, very kind. No rocks, no tomatoes. That's pretty good. Maybe we'll make it another week. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org.